0: I've now great pleasure to introduce my dear brother Trev. It's always a great joy to have Trevor share because I know that what he's going to bring is always relevant, always pertinent, usually spiced with humor, always good to have a laugh. But it's in those moments of laughter where the truth gets in. And so would you open up your hearts to my dear brother this morning and uh, just receive from him, Trev, good to have you. Let's just pray, shall we? So, Father, we want to thank you that we've journeyed a long time together on this road called life, but we want to thank you for your faithfulness through it all. We've learned to trust in Jesus. And I just pray as Trev shares this morning, would something of that life that you've put in him sustain him and carry him through this morning as he imparts it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Pete. With an introduction like that, I can't wait to hear what I've got to say. And that's for real. Some of you know that I spent much of my early life at a church in Hiratonga that is now a cafe called The Fig Tree. And um, I really appreciated my upbringing there. It was um, incredible. And the teaching, uh, the coaching, the mentoring, and discipling I had, especially in the youth group, were was just marvellous. And uh, I, I owe a lot of who I am today to that church. And some of you are saying you yeah, will blame them, eh? Um, but this, that's that's who I am. And I, I really, But even though it was a was a marvelous time, and I left probably in my mid twenties, but um, I I noticed that there was a kind of a severe, a rigid, a harsh, if you like, almost an austere outworking of the Christian faith. There didn't seem to be a lot of joy and exuberance and fun and laughter. Uh, or at least on the surface it didn't seem to be. And it was, I guess, revealed to me in a, in a strange way as a kid because there was an, an organist there, who her name was Joy, but she was never happy. And I kind of thought, well, that, that sort of summed everything right up, you know. But a lot of the Christian walk seemed to be portrayed as a list of things that you didn't do. Like you weren't allowed to smoke, you weren't allowed to, you know, go dancing, you weren't allowed to play cards, buy ice creams on Sunday and that sort of stuff, you know. And so it seemed that the Christian walk was defined by what you couldn't do rather than what you did do and and who you were. And there was a sign, in fact it still is, there's a painting on, on the glass window of the cafe now. It says, Thou God seest me. It's... little strange but the guy who wrote who painted that a few years later confronted someone else in the congregation after a very heavy argument and proceeded to threaten to shoot him with his rifle and kind of I wondered then did thou God seest him you know but this thou God seest me with that understanding or that expression of the outworking of faith it was almost if God wasn't so much a loving father, but more of an angry old man with a stick. I remember when I had my first and my only cigarette, it was up on the hills of Kingsley Heights, just above Ferguson Drive, above the railway line, and and I I lit the smoke and I was hiding behind a bush. and, I, and As I was doing that, I was remembering, now God sees me, and I've, I've kind of felt like Adam in the Garden of Eden, you know, except except I was wearing pants and not a fig leaf, you know. And there was, there was something about faith in those days that was just a little bit, a little bit different. And so I, I kind of struggled a wee bit, even though I really enjoyed the time there. And the, um, with this list of things that you weren't allowed to do, you see, we had a dog, and this dog didn't do any of those things. Didn't buy ice creams on Sunday. It didn't, it didn't drink and it didn't smoke it, and it, um, it didn't play cards. It, it might have danced if it snuck out on I go clubbing on a Saturday night. And I, as a kid, I kind of wondered, is the dog a better Christian than me? And so I remember the harshness a little bit of some of the Old Testament stories and how, how kind of horrendous they, the, the image that they portrayed in, in the mind and wondered how could that relate to a loving God. And then I, actually one of the, can I just tell, it? I'll tell a story about, about the church. You will love this. Reminded of it this morning during communion. But we had, um, in those days, we had three lots of chairs, three aisles like this. But the communion was in just three glasses and it was port. And in those days, the communion, the wine or the, the port started at the front of the of the three aisles and went to the rear. Now, when, when you were old enough in those days, like 11 or 12, to sit apart from your parents, us boys used to sit down in the back corner on the left-hand side and there was this woman, elderly woman who sat at the front who used to come in with another elderly couple and they looked after her. She would sit at the front, second seat back. And she used to backwash. Now, for those of you who don't know what backwashing is, it means that you've decided to have a drink but you haven't decided how much you're going to keep. And so we'd be sitting down the back and we would watch Mrs. So-and-so take most of the port down and then most of it would, would come up again. And we would, it was a long time. Sometimes we'd be thinking, we could sing another hymn in the time that that, that port was down there. And all the people behind would be going, oh no, here she goes again. And, and of course they knew that they were next in line for communion. Now, you couldn't do much, in that church you couldn't do much about it because you didn't want to change seats. Because it was kind of, it was almost as if your your name was written on the seat that you were sitting in. And having your name on the seat was just as important as having your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So no one shifted. And they just sort of put up with this backwashed port every Sunday morning until someone laid a complaint with the elders. I don't know, do people still complain to the elders? I mean... Someone, someone laid a complaint to the elders. And so they had a, what they call an annual general meeting. And at the annual general meeting they announced that, someone, that, that the wine was now going to start from the back and finish up at the front. And us boys down the back corner just laughed because we thought, wouldn't it be hilarious if this elderly woman got so frail that she couldn't come to the front anymore but had to sit down the back. You know? <laughs> Anyway, it was a great church. Loved it. But there was a harshness and sometimes the stories without proper explanation made me really wonder about this loving God. You know. And I remember um, a preacher one morning talking on Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, where it talks about us um, giving our lives as a, as a sacrifice on the altar. And I just couldn't get my head around that, let alone my body. And we, those are the sort of things that we kind of live with and, uh, at that stage of my life. But here I am. So this morning, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. If I could have that on the screen there, that'll be good. And as we look at that, I want us to perhaps look at some fundamental truths. We may only get one done this morning – We have to pick up on the rest another another day, but there are some fundamental truths in here that will help us, I think, live our Christian walk in a way that is energizing, it's exciting, it's fulfilling, it's, it's achievable in every way that we've ever dreamed. How many of us have lived our Christian life or living it now always wanting a little bit more? Always, almost, you know, you know the term sweet spot, where we, we're wanting to hit that spot. We know there's problems. We know life is not easy. But we somehow want to grab hold of everything that God has for us. And we, and we, we sing that song, don't we? Um, I want more of you, God. And part of that is, is God, I, I want to have everything of you that I can ever have. And I'm wondering, I sometimes wonder in my... Um, stupid capacity sometimes, Whether when we sing that song, I want more of you, God. Whether God has coached the angels in heaven to be singing to us, saying, he wants more of you, church. So I think one of the keys for us to have more of God is for him to have more of us. So, Let's look at that. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to Him and acceptable to Him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mould, but let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in His eyes. Now, when Paul wrote that, this letter, Romans, to the church in Rome, he had yet to visit Rome, and we are not quite sure how the church started there. Maybe um, there's an assumption that some of the uh, people from Pentecost in in Jerusalem made their way back to Rome, or they'd heard the message in some other parts of Asia Minor, gone back to Rome and started a church there, and so Paul is writing this letter, to the church in Rome. And he starts off in chapter 12 by saying, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God. In other words, he's referencing what he has previously said in his letter to these people. With eyes wide open, in other words, just give some thought to what I've said previously. And we need to just perhaps summarise what he's what he's been talking about in the previous 11 chapters. So in chapters 1 to 3, if you like, Paul has has outlined the condition of the human race. He's saying, we've all sinned. We've all wronged God. We're all alienated from God. None of, us, none of us have this relationship with God, and sin has created this separation. Chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of God's standard. And so we're all there. None of us... We're all in this, if you like, sinking boat. And we're all condemned. There's nothing we can do. We can try and obey the law. That doesn't help. We can try and do good works. That doesn't help either. We're condemned. We stand before a judge condemned. Have you ever stood before a judge knowing that you're wrong? Not, it's, not, it's a scary thought. I remember in my E.H. Holden, my e. Holden, how many years ago? 50 years ago, speeding up the Otaki Coast, and got caught by a police officer. He had to go to court, stood before a judge. And I, I tried to smart my way out of it. It didn't work. And he threw the book at me. It's, it's, it's a scary thing, standing before a judge, knowing that you're wronged. So that's chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 4 to 5, he brings in the this solution that God has. That God, just to, uh, God brings his and satisfies his justice and his love when he sends Jesus as a gift to us, to die on a cross. In chapter 5, verse 8, I think it is, is God demonstrated his love for us by sending his son to die for us. And we've done nothing to deserve that. And all we can do is, with open arms, open hands, uh, receive this this gift of grace. And then he moves on to to chapter 6 and 7, and he's, he's talking about a big word called sanctif- sanctification. How, how can I be more like Christ? How can I grow to be more like him? And he kind of looks at this tension of the life that we live, wanting to, wanting to do good, but the old life kind of tempts us to do the other stuff, and we're caught in the middle. And, and Paul brings in the analogy of the, of the slave and the master, and he says, listen, don't, don't live for a master who's dead. Live for the new master, and you're free to do that. And he talks about God's Holy Spirit within us. And then in chapters 8 to 11, Paul is is basically saying, hey, listen, God has got everything in control for your life, for creation, and for the nation of Israel. And remember, verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on and I think we talked about it a few months back where uh, and it talks of all creation standing on tiptoes waiting for the, the sons of men to be revealed and God is going to restore creation through, through us and then in chapter and then verse 28, 29 about um, all things work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And he goes on and, and uh, says that we are more than conquerors. And then the last part of chapter 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing at all. Death can't. Hell can't. The principalities cannot separate us from God's love. And so Paul is getting to chapter 12 and he's saying, in light of all this, in light of what God has done, this is what I want you to do for him. In other words, Paul outlines what God has done before he requests what the people do for God. And so the first part of this is, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Does that all make sense? It does, eh? Right, so what does God need God wants and God needs a gift. We all give considerable thought to a gift we give, don't we? How many of you husbands are giving considerable thought to the gift you're going to give your wives at Christmas? How many? Come on. How many of you husbands know that Christmas just is around the corner? <laughs> we give considerable thought to a gift. I, I gave my first my first girlfriend a gift when I was eight years old she was a nice girl but she didn't have any jewellery now my mother had lots of jewellery <laughs> or I thought she did my mother had a duchess you're not a duchess as I it's not the wife of Duke a duchess is a chest with a recessed bit in the middle and a mirror that kind of pivots you, who's got a duchess? right, okay guys put your hands down, you don't have duchesses and my, my mum had some, had some jewellery on the Duchess and I thought she had too much and so I took a brooch and I took it to school and I, I gave it to Debbie and she loved it. I mean, she looked great, came to school the next day with a, with a brooch on a cardie. I mean, she looked awesome, you know. I mean, girls, if you're thinking of knocking a guy off, I mean, um, you can forget the fancy clothes and the earrings, go for a brooch on the cardi every time. <laughs> Their legs will be like rubber, you know. And, and that was great for a couple of days until I get home from school and my mother is standing on the back porch with her arms like this. And she quoted that verse that she often quoted from Numbers 32. Be sure your sin will find you out. And she always used to kind of explain that the verse didn't say, be sure your sin will be found out, but be sure your sin will find you out. And it did. Mrs. Debbie's mother, I won't mention the second name because they probably still live here. Debbie's mother had rung my mother. And uh, talk about humiliation. It was not as humiliating as three, uh, 30 years later at a school reunion, standing in the courtyard. And over in the far corner was Debbie and a friend. And Debbie touches the friend's arm and points over to me as if to say, there he is. Humiliating. Yeah. know, humiliating. A gift. We all give gifts. Let's give considerable thought to the gifts that we give. What does he want? What does God need? Ultimately, he doesn't need our good works. He doesn't want us to, um, he doesn't want our words, he doesn't want our money, and he doesn't even need our singing on a Sunday morning. He doesn't need our morality, he doesn't need our good behaviour. What he really wants is me. Paul is saying, gift this body to the one who can change your life. All right, so let's look at that. Let's look at the body we give. The body given. Okay. So in light of his mercies, his goodness, the gift we give is our bodies as an intelligent act of worship. One of the translations talks about a reasonable expression of worship. And this is the only part in the New Testament where the word reasonable is used. And the Greek word for that is logikos, from where we get our word, of course, logical. So what Paul is saying, that in light of everything that God has done for you, the most logical thing you can do is to give your body to him. Now, why does, why does he talk about bodies as a sacrifice, because we often just saying I give my life to God. So why does Paul here talk about bodies? I want to suggest three things. We give our body firstly because it's the container of all that we are; it's the vessel in which we live. Secondly, it's the public or the visible part of me. The message translation says this: Take your everyday your ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work life, you're walking around life and place it before God as an offering. See how practical that makes what we give God as a gift. And thirdly, our bodies are the problem. It's our humanness that is tainted and damaged by sin. It really is. For example, the mouth. The first, the first thing that should be consecrated are our words. What drops from our lips? Um, James probably, definitely says it better than I could. So let's just read what James says about the tongue. The human tongue is physically small but it can accomplish anything or destroy it. A whole forest can be set ablaze by a tiny spark of fire, and the tongue is a fire, a whole world of evil. It is set within our bodily members, but it can poison the whole body. It can set the whole of life ablaze, fed from the fires of hell. Beasts, birds, reptiles, and all kinds of sea creatures can be, and are in fact tamed by man. But no one can tame the human tongue. It is an evil, always liable to break out, and the poison it spreads is deadly. So, the first thing that we, when, we, when we're talking about giving our body or giving our life, we, we need to be so conscious of the words that come off the tongue. They can destroy, they can create a fire. What about our ears? What about when someone comes to us and says, um, hey, have you heard about? What's our response to that? Do, does, the, does the flap on our rubbish bin kind of lift up and we you know, take all this garbage in about what the gossip that someone is, is expressing? You know? Have you heard about? And sometimes we say, really? No. What we're really saying is, tell me more. We need to close the rubbish tin and say, "Hey, listen! I don't want to hear that. Go and talk it over with the person that you're that you're on about." You know, we need to shut our ears to stuff that we don't need to hear, and 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 be listen to clean stuff, and put people back, and encourage them to go back to those that that they are even talking about to put things right or to ensure that the stories that they're even sharing are correct in themselves. Watch what we listen to. What about our our eyes? Jesus was often talking about, it's not what we do so much, it's what we look at. And at this time of the year, we could very much say, if you look upon pavlova and cream with lust in your eyes, you've committed desert in your heart. So we need to be careful about what we look at. Guys, very careful about what we look at and where that takes us. What about our hands? Have I got hands that are open and give, or are they clenched tight and withhold selfishly? Do my hands strike in anger, or do they touch and embrace and love? What about my feet? Do they take me to places I shouldn't go before? Conceded that he had gone shopping. Did you go to Queensgate? Good man. Good man. Because people die, men die there, we know that. When their wives leave them on those, on those chairs in the concourse for 35 years while they go shopping, guys just just pass away, it's sad. So to God, So do our feet take us to places we shouldn't go? Or do they take us to places where we can bless others at this time of the year? You know, do we, do we go out of our way to travel to someone who has maybe not got many friends or their family are away at this time of the year? Do we visit them and, and do our feet bless those that need to be blessed? And so our feet need to be part of what we offer to God as part of our bodies. The recipients of this letter were familiar with the term sacrifice. Those of the Jews that were in Rome, they they knew that sacrifice was necessary to appease Yahweh uh, when they when they had broken the law, and those of other ethnic groups who were in Rome at this church would have experienced the need for sacrifice in their culture. I mean, to uh, to appeal to their gods for safekeeping or for crops to flourish or for maybe a victory in battle. But they knew what sacrifice meant. But a sacrifice to them was always something else. It was a bird or a goat or a a sheep. Maybe for some pagan groups it could have been a child. But it was never you. You never put yourself on the altar as a sacrifice. But that's what Paul is saying. He says, don't worry about The animals. It's you that needs to go onto the onto the altar, and the image of of the sacrifice, of course, meant that they would be having this image of an altar. Now, altars are ugly things. I went to I went to Amsterdam for a conference with um, Ian Grant from Youth for Christ years ago, and we stopped off in New York and went through the United Nations building as a kind of a, a guided tour. Because we were there just after the Rainbow Warrior bombing, we got a special kind of um, access into different areas. And we got to go into the meditation room. And in the meditation room, what had happened is that delegates from the different countries and different religious groups had been given an opportunity to come up with a, something that was a focal point in the room. And all it is, surrounded by some fairly simple chairs, is a huge black stone bl- black granite slab and it's beautiful, pristine, shiny and you can Google it, Meditation Room United Nations you'll see this black granite slab and that's, that's the impression that they had of an altar but an altar was an ugly, horrendous thing dry blood, animal entrails hanging off the side and so what Paul is saying to these people is hey, listen, your body needs to go on the altar and then he says it's a living sacrifice. Not killed first, living. A living sacrifice going on to the altar means that it could actually decide to walk off and to climb off. So when Paul was saying this, he's saying some pretty heavy and meaty stuff about what is necessary to, to align yourself and to give yourself to the God who has done so much for you in the past. And that is the gift. That he requires. I want you to listen to a an excerpt from a book by C.S. Lewis called *Mere Christianity*. If you haven't read, if you have never read *Mere Christianity*, it is a really good book, and no matter what stage you are in your Christian walk, grab hold of it and uh, read it. There's some very good material in there. But he he says this. He says, "Give me all of you." I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and your money and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and there. Rather, I want the whole tree out, Hand it over to me the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes and your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make you a new self. In my image, give me yourself and in exchange, I will give you myself. My heart shall become your heart. My will shall become your will. Isn't that good? There are a couple of other sections to this that I've probably covered in that that screenshot there. The life not squeezed and the mind transformed. We're going to deal with them another day. But so so often we want more of God, if we can just have the musicians back up very soon. So often we want more of God, but I'm suggesting that what we need to understand is that once we give our all to God, he gives all to us. And it's a process. It doesn't always just happen. Sometimes, you know, I've, I've discovered that putting myself on the altar is a daily thing. That I give the more, of I, know, the more I know of myself today, to the more I know of God. In other words, tomorrow I'll discover some things about myself. They may not be good. They may, have, may happen to me when I'm anxious or when I'm angry or whatever. Stuff may occur. And I just know that tomorrow I've got to give that stuff to all that I know of the God that I know. And that will change. Can I ask us as we just get ready to sing and go to the cafe afterwards. That if you need to this morning give your life afresh, give your body afresh, maybe you're aware of some stuff you've been saying, some stuff that comes from your lips that's that's not wholesome, and that your mouth or your your tongue needs to be given to God. Maybe your ears, maybe your hands, maybe you're selfish and you're holding back and you're saying, God, I need you to take take and renew what. You've given me and as I give it back to you. Fill me with your life as I give my life back to you. Maybe just right as I'm going to pray in a moment that you would be just conscious of what needs to be submitted back as you put yourself on the altar again. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that as we we listen to the story, the condensed story in Romans, what you've done from our condition to your, the saving grace of Jesus, and what he's done for us and the Holy Spirit working in us and all things working together for good and that, you are, that we're never separated from your love. We thank you for all of that. <clears throat> and in response to that, we give ourselves, we give our body, all that there is in this container. We give it back to you and we ask that you would lord help our will to be your will. It will. create in us a heart that is after your heart in Jesus name. make us anew. make us the people that you want us to be in Jesus name. thank you for all you've done. amen. amen.
0: so much, my brother. That was good. That was very good. I've just sprung something on the musicians this morning. hope we can pull it off, but I just felt that we needed to sing a song that goes back several generations. But it's just very simple. It's just the song that goes, he's all I need. Jesus is all I need. And this morning, you're sitting here and maybe you have never started on this journey. Maybe you've never considered that there's an that God might want to do something in your life. Maybe you've never surrendered, maybe you've never put your life on the altar. Ever. Maybe you've gone through church and you've missed all of that. I mean, I grew up in the church in Nelson and and I missed it for many years. And maybe you've missed it too, but As we just close this service, let's sing this song. There's no words to go up, but I would really encourage you to reach out to God today and just declare in your heart of hearts that He's all you need. Try and remember the words. He's all I need. He's
2: all I need. Jesus is all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. Let's stand together, shall we? come and just stand and you very simple take him now i take him now for all that i need i take him now i
0: Him. That's the the last verse, isn't it?
2: We worship Him. We worship Him in spirit and truth, in spirit and in truth.
0: thank you that you love us. I want to thank you you reached down and you grabbed us when we couldn't do anything. And today Lord, we've been encouraged to lay our lives back on the altar, to give it up, to say I surrender, to say Lord, you're all we need. Father, we do that today. We do it today because we love you, because of what you've done for us. Father, we thank you In your precious name, and for your glory, God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you once again, Trev. Appreciate that.